Church family, if you have your copy of God's Word, I want you to find the book of Jeremiah, and I'd like for you to turn to the 32nd chapter, Jeremiah chapter 32. For those of you who are guests of ours, we always enjoy many family members and friends of those precious ones we dedicated a few moments ago. We're in the book of Jeremiah. We've been there a decade and a half, and we're walking through it verse by verse. I'm only teasing slightly. Uh, but we are now to chapter 32 in a sermon series within a sermon series called Restoration. The book of Jeremiah is a prophetic word from God through a prophet named Jeremiah that Israel is about to experience divine judgment. That judgment would come under the Babylonians who in 586 B.C. marched on, besieged, and destroyed Jerusalem. And Jeremiah prophesies before, during, and after this great destruction. And it is a book of hard truths from God, but it is not a book absent of hope. Did you know, though, that hope doesn't exist by itself? In fact, hope is not absent of doubt. It's not the absence of doubt. Oftentimes, when we think about hope in the midst of difficult times, we imagine someone who looks like you or I a few moments ago as we were being so beautifully led to sing with this team on stage, and we were singing with great confidence and great passion, and we imagine that same person never experiencing doubt. However, it is an amazingly freeing reality when you recognize that the greatest men and women of God not only exhibit faith, which leads to hope, they also exhibit and struggle with internally and at times express it externally, doubt. I think about that in relationship to our celebration of babies a few moments ago. Every father in the room knows how this works. You come into this world a baby. Your memories are being a boy. Then you're told to grow up and become a man. There are two decisions a man must make in his life, who he will spend his life with, choosing and asking and pursuing with the love of a woman, a hand in marriage, and then how he will provide for his family, his career. And a lot of times, your late teens and your early 20s, you're making those decisions. Whom will marry me? And for men like me, the line wasn't very long. Whom will marry me? And what will I do to provide for my family. And of course, that same experience is something that our ladies know something about. Who will I spend my life with? Who will be my husband? And if I feel called to work outside the home, what will my career be? And when I am given the gift of being a mother, will I be a good mother? I don't know a woman in this room. I don't know a woman in our church watching online that does not want to be a good mother, a nurturer of her children's heart, someone who makes her house into a home. And speaking of home, then you buy your first house. You remember attending that closing? You know what closing means? It means all your extra spending is closed off now. All your dreams and hopes of traveling the world, those are closed down. You walk into a room, everybody's smiling because everybody's getting paid by you for the next 30 years. Everybody's happy that day. You're happy, she's happy, the attorney's happy, the real estate agents are happy, everybody's happy because they all know when you leave, you got 30 years to pay them back 
for what you have just done, which is borrow twice what the house is worth so that you can have it. Don't ever study amortization. Uh, it will break your heart. But whenever you go to that closing, I remember the very first time Laurel and I bought a home when we moved here, and I had the privilege of becoming your pastor almost 18 years ago. We bought a small garden home over in Roebuck. We were Roebuckians for a while, and then we were Moorish. We lived in Moor, and now we're in Arians. But we... But we bought, we, bought, we bought a little home, little garden home, perfect little first-time home. It was me. It was her. It was our three-week-old baby boy that we dedicated here, just like many of these men and women dedicated this morning. And I remember during the closing stopping and asking if we could have prayer. And I probably prayed a prayer about God's goodness in our life and, and thankfulness. But under my breath, I was saying, Lord Jesus, if you don't show up, I'll never make this payment. If you don't move mightily, I'm sure they'll come and get this house. There's a nervousness to it. You know, you try to pay attention to the first few sheets of paper. But what they do is they overwhelm you with so many sheets of paper. By the end of it, you just sign and you don't even know what you're doing. The last closing I went to, we took a kid with us in case they needed one. Here, you, you want one of these? We, we got these, right? In fact, interestingly, the last closing that my wife and I participated in was closing from a construction loan to a permanent loan on a home we were privileged to build a year, year and a half ago. We had already sold our home, and so there was about a week gap in between the closing of our home and the closing of the loan from construction to permanent. Many of you have been there. You know how it works. And so for that one week, we had all the equity of our sale of our home. So in my bank account was more money than I have ever had. Due to COVID, we had to do the closing in the bank drive-through. And so, which is awesome because it shows you how they make it bigger than it is. I mean, it was wham, bam, 90 seconds, it was done. We got to the closing a little early. Love our banker, love the folks we work with, great people. We got our closing a little early. So we were sitting in the parking lot having a date. At our age, having a date means you stopped and got a burrito and you're eating it in the truck. This is as awesome as it gets. And we're sitting there and we're looking at the bank. I'm across the street from the bank. I parked under a shade tree and I'm eating my Mexican rice bowl. I think Laurel got some quesadillas and we're eating. And I looked at her and I said, you know, in about 10 minutes, we've got to pull through that drive-through and I have a check in the console of more money than we've ever had from the equity of the sale of our home that we've lived in for a long time and built a lot of equity in. I have more money than I've ever had in my bank account. We are about to hand it to those people. Let's make a run for it. <laughs> Let's go. I mean, we could live for a while. The children will be fine. They'll be fine. The older ones will fend for the younger ones. Somebody, somebody from the church surely will step up. They'll hand them out. Let's just go. And she paused. And that scared me because <laughs> I thought she might want us to go split the check and make a run for it, you know? Sure, honey, it's been good. I'm going to go my way. You go yours. And that didn't happen. We drove across the street, and I handed them the largest check of my life. And now for the next 30 years, I'm going to work on paying it back. There's something to be said of those moments in your life where you look around at the significance of the financial commitment you're making, and doubt creeps in. If you've ever dabbled in real estate, if you've ever closed on a home, if you've ever purchased a piece of property, Jeremiah chapter 32 is for you. In fact, if you'll allow me, I want to call this sermon Real Estate Restoration. Believe it or not, Jeremiah is asked to buy a piece of property, not by his mother, not by his brother, 
not by his king, not by a fellow prophet, but by God himself. And the interesting thing about a juicy real estate story, whether it's a show about people that flip property or it's someone who buys homes and resells them in order to make money or buys homes as rental property, there's some ingredients that have to be there. First, you have to make a risky investment. You gotta be willing to put the money down. And, and then you gotta deal with your own doubts. Am I making the right decision? And then you gotta be honest. What have I bought? I need an honest appraisal. I need to know an assessment of the property. And then for it to work, if you're going to make money in real estate, for it to work, the property needs to increase in value. This is why we do sign those loans because we recognize unlike any investment in our life, real estate most of the time, not 100% of the time, but most of the time, unlike everything else we purchase, goods and services, real estate over time goes up in value. Vehicles do not go up in value. Food is eaten the moment that you buy it. The services that we have or that we pay for people to do for us are gone the moment they are received. But when you invest your money in a piece of property or you invest your money in a home, if you do your research and you take the right precautions, that is an investment that one day will yield a return. And all of that's wrapped up in Jeremiah chapter 32. Let me show you, first of all, a risky investment. Look what the Bible says beginning in Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the 10th year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, context matters. Verse 2 is very important to understanding this chapter. At the time, at that time, the army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem. Now, let me just stop. Let me make sure you understand. Jerusalem has not yet been totally destroyed. That's coming. We're going to get to that. But the army's already besieging Jerusalem. In antiquity, in ancient warfare, there were no F-16s. There were no drones. There were no Tomahawk missiles that could be launched from a battleship in, in the surrounding area, from a local sea. No. You had to go with foot soldiers and besiege this is why every ancient city always built a wall. There is no air force. And so if people are going to take our town, our city, our village, my home, they're going to have to come on foot or on horseback. And so we're going to put any barrier we can. It's one of the reasons why cities were often built up on plateaus as Jerusalem was. It's also another reason why much investment was put in the walls just by way of Bible history. Years later, when Nehemiah goes back to begin rebuilding the city, the first thing he builds is the wall. In fact, the book of Nehemiah is about Nehemiah rebuilding the wall. Now, there's a lot of spiritual connotations there, but the truth is you cannot have commerce you cannot have society function. We're even learning that now. Look at the cities in our nation where crime is skyrocketing because there is a wrongly motivated uh, movement against men and women in law enforcement, which causes more hurt and more victimization of the very people that some are trying to protect. You must have law and order, and in the ancient world, law and order meant you must have a wall. So to besiege a city meant, number one, you had to conquer the surrounding villages. 
Then number two, you had to set up around the gates. They're not going to open the gates for you unless you reach a treaty. And number three, they would build what were called besieging towers. Now, this could be mounds of dirt. It could be rocks. It could be made out of wood. But long story short, they would build up so they could march soldiers up on top of the wall and into the city. And then from the inside and the outside, if they could destroy a hole through the wall, they would send their army in. Okay, this is happening. So the last thing that would be on anybody's mind if you were under attack is a real estate deal. In fact, who in their right mind would ever invest in a piece of property to get today in Afghanistan? Go on Airbnb and see if you can find anywhere to stay in North Korea. Not there. Places that are volatile, places that are ruled by authoritarian states, places where violence and terrorism are the norm, places where there are military conflict, commerce shuts down. In fact, law and order, our brave men and women in uniform, are the ones that create the rules of society or at least enforce them so that we can take our children to school, that we can purchase a piece of property, that we can close on a home, that we might invest in a piece of land and build a duplex. The idea of functioning normally is on the back of men and women who hold people accountable to obey the law. The next time you pass a man or woman in uniform, thank them for the job that they do because they made you able to live your life today in peace. And when we see this and when we begin to understand it, we see now that Jeremiah is about to be given an assignment that is incredibly risky. Look what happens beginning in verse 3. It says, or verse 2, At that time the army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem, and Jeremiah, a prophet, was shut up in the court of the guard. So Jeremiah was under arrest. Now he wasn't in a dungeon or a pit at this point. He's under arrest. Why is he under arrest? Look what verse 3 says. For Zedekiah, king of Judah, had imprisoned him, saying, Why do you prophesy? And thus says the Lord, Behold, I am giving this city into the hand of the king of Babylon. So, long story short, I'm going to summarize down through verse 5. Jeremiah had been locked up by the king that said, You're on our side, aren't you? Aren't you a Jew? Of course I'm a Jew. Don't you believe in God? Of course I believe in God. The God of heaven, the one true living God, the God of Abraham, the God of Moses? Of course. Then Jeremiah, if you are one of us, why are you prophesying against me? And, of course, Jeremiah's answer is because you have turned against God. It's not for Jeremiah to come up with this content. Jeremiah is only a spokesman of what God told him to do, and it got him in trouble. And, by the way, if you're serious about standing for your faith, there will be many people who applaud you. There will be many people who encourage you, and you will be an example to many people. But at some point, it will cost you something. And you have to be willing to pay that cost. We're seeing that transition even in our own society where people are persecuted for openly believing biblical truth. Jeremiah was under persecution, so he's in jail. Now, at this point, part of me wants to say, man, he's done what he's supposed to do. I mean, he's been locked up. You know, God, why don't you just say, Jeremiah, well done, my good and faithful servant, and give him the day off. No, no, no. God sends a word to Jeremiah. Look what the Bible says, beginning in verse 6. Jeremiah said, the word of the Lord came to me. 
Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, will come to you and say, Buy my field that is in Anathoth. Now, Anathoth is Jeremiah's hometown. So don't get lost in the names. Jeremiah's uncle is going to send his nephew, which will be Jeremiah's cousin. And his nephew, Jeremiah's cousin, is going to say, Buy my uncle's field. Now, I don't have time this morning to flesh it out. But there is a Jewish tradition built in the Levitical law called the Kinsman Redeemer. The most famous book about the Kinsman Redeemer is the book of Ruth. The idea is, is that land is a gift. It matters. It's a legacy possession. You know this if you've ever inherited a piece of property. It is quite a blessing to inherit something that has risen in value. And there are many people who work their whole lives and the pinnacle of their financial accomplishment is to buy that dream home or to build that dream farm and they desire to pass that home or that vacation home on to the joy of their children knowing it will only increase in value. Well, inside of the Levitical law, if a Jewish family got to a point where a piece of property was going to be lost due to debt or was going to be lost due to mismanagement, there were laws that said if another family member is able to come and purchase the land, they get dibs. Because keeping the land within the family was protected, a way of God protecting his people. And so Jeremiah has relatives saying, buy this field. Now think about this. This is a field in a village that the Babylonians have already marched by on their way to Jerusalem. This is not on the forefront of enemy lines. This is behind enemy lines and already conquered. This is like trying to trade with Confederate money after the Confederacy surrendered to the Union. It was worthless. This is why the South went through what's called a great reconstruction economically as thousands upon thousands of men and women were freed from the travesty of slavery and the economy of the Confederate dollar completely and totally collapsed and the South had to rebuild itself and this reconstruction that you study in, in American history was wrought with suffering because the economy was not functioning and literally had to be rebuilt from the ground up. This is what Jerusalem is facing. This is not the time you go buy a piece of property. You know what Jeremiah did? He went and bought the piece of property. Now you have to be very careful in biblical interpretation. Remember, every example in the Bible is not an example that you should go repeat. There's plenty of things in the Bible that should not be repeated. Every story is not for you and I to spiritualize and find a way for us to enact or reenact. I'm not in any way encouraging you to make bids on land in Afghanistan or northern Korea. I am saying this. There are times when God asks you to do things that the world finds senseless. Do them anyway. For fear of stretching the text too much, think about the things that the world says is senseless now. The world says it makes no sense to give your life to one woman and be committed to her for the rest of your life. Do it anyway. The world says it makes no sense not to sleep together before you're married. Still, chase purity with all your heart. The world says it makes no sense to be an adult but choose not to watch certain movies, not because you're going to replicate the language, but because when trash comes in, trash comes out. Purify your life anyway. The world would say, how dare a church ask you 
to tithe your income to a nonprofit which makes no promises for you specifically to receive goods and services. Give to the kingdom anyway. When Jeremiah is asked to do something that the world would see as senseless, he obeyed. But this lies such a tension. His obedience is not the absence of doubt. So the rest of the beginning part of the chapter outlines the sale. Verse 9, and I bought the field at Anathoth from Hanimal, my cousin, and weighed out the money to him in 17 shekels of silver. I signed the deed, sealed it, got witnesses, and weighed the money and the scales. By the way, if you love Bible history, this is one of the most detailed real estate transactions in all the Scripture, and it shows the wisdom of God. Much of what we do today is right out of the Bible. It matters to have witnesses. It matters to have insurance. I don't mean in the form of insurance you can buy, though you can buy that. It's called PMI. It matters to have the insurance of recognizing that a person of legal status, an attorney, recognizes the legitimacy of your sale. We see order in Scripture that is emulated in our life today. I signed the deed, sealed it got witnesses and weighed the money on the scales. Then I took the sealed deed, purchase containing the terms, the conditions, on, and, and the open copy, and I gave the deed of purchase to Barak, the son of Nerez, son of Messiah, in the presence of Hanimal, my cousin, in the presence of the witnesses who signed the deed of the purchases, and in the presence, this is a closing, folks, and all the Judeans were sitting in the court of the guard. I charged Barak in the presence, saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, the, Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, take these deeds both this sealed deed of purchase and this open deed and put them in an earthenware vessel. This is the ancient version of a safety deposit box that they may last for a long time. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. And there we go. God was not asking Jeremiah to be a part of a get rich scheme. He was asking Jeremiah to do something that Jeremiah would do as a symbolic act of future restoration. Now, if you've been in this book with me for a while, which you all have, you know that this is not the first time Jeremiah is asked to do something that is purely symbolic. In chapter 5, he's told by God, run through the streets. Jeremiah must have been in shape. I barely preach now. I couldn't run and then preach. He said, chapter 16, he said, Jeremiah, don't take a wife. Don't marry. I want your singleness to show the world that they shouldn't be acting as normal, that destruction is coming. So Jeremiah was not allowed to take a wife. Chapter 19, Jeremiah, go buy a piece of pottery and shatter it in front of the people, as I did the day I preached that on this stage, to depict the shattering of God's people under his divine judgment. So there are times when prophets are asked to act out something for symbolic reasons, and that's what this purchase is all about. It made no sense to anyone for Jeremiah to buy this field. But he bought it so that he could say, and just as surely as I bought this field of a nation going up in flames, one day regular life will return. Fields will be bought. Houses will be sold. Children will be born. Generation upon generation will be blessed. Now, if the chapter ended there, the application would be this. Sometimes God asks us to do things that don't make sense, and sometimes he asks us to do things that don't make sense to send a message to those around us. And sometimes when he asks us to do things that don't make sense to send a message to those around us, we should be willing to do them obediently. But the chapter doesn't end there. In fact, 
deep down, even though Jeremiah obeyed God, he still doubted what God is doing. Can I tell you that's okay? I'm not praising doubt. I don't ever want to be a leader that portrays to you I have more questions than answers. All my questions have been answered in Jesus. We are to live lives of confidence. We are to live lives of confidence, rather, asserting the truth of God into our lives. So we're not to be wishy-washy, always in some spiritual limbo soup. But you're not alive if you don't deal with doubt. And all of a sudden, buyer's remorse takes over. In fact, we have a buyer with doubt in the second phrase of this chapter. Look what happens beginning right after this purchase in verse 16. After I had given the deed of purchase to Barak, the son of Neriah, I prayed to the Lord of hosts. Now listen to how this prayer starts, verse 17. Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Underline that. Jeremiah says in prayer, nothing is too hard for you. You Did you know throughout the book of Jeremiah, we're told on several occasions, Jeremiah is told by God, do not pray. 7.16, 11.14, 14.11, those chapter and verses, God specifically said, Jeremiah, don't pray for these people. I've already made my decision up. I'm going to bring destruction. But only twice do we have recorded prayers of Jeremiah. And this is one of them. And this is about Jeremiah's personal struggle with God. It begins great. Look at verse 18. You show steadfast love to thousands, but you repay the guilt of fathers to their children after them. O great and mighty God, whose name is the Lord of hosts, great in counsel and mighty in deeds. And from verse 19 all the way through verse 24, Jeremiah beautifully and accurately portrays his understanding of the righteous, faithful character of God. Hang on to that. I'm going to come back to that. So Jeremiah prays this beautiful prayer, acknowledging before God who God is. And then we get to verse 25. Find verse 25. Yet you, O Lord, God, have said to me, buy the field for money and get witnesses, <laughs> though the city is given into the hands of the Chaldeans. Now, most scholars do not believe Jeremiah is just recounting his act of faith. In fact, as I understand the original language of the Old Testament, this is what he's saying. God, you're big. You've done all this stuff. There's nothing too great and wise and mighty for you. And you want little old me to buy a field in a country where nothing's going to matter and nothing will have any worth. By the way, the Babylonians didn't honor certificates of ownership. This is not a political takeover. This is a military takeover. The Jews lost everything. When a conquering army conquers a nation, we don't ask. We tell. This is who's going to own this. This is who's going to own this. When I was born, not today, thankfully, but I, when I was born, there was a wall dividing Western and Eastern Germany because after World War II, the Allies split control of that nation. Nobody asked Germany. Didn't have to. They were conquered. And so the wall was built through Berlin symbolically, and the country was divided in a geopolitical way 
Russia maintaining half and the Western allies maintaining the other half. Of course, we know President Ronald Reagan went there and said, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall, that famous moment in history. But nobody asked the Germans about that real estate after they lost World War II because they were the reason World War II happened and they were the defeated, rightly defeated axis of power. And so Jeremiah is saying, God, I don't understand what you're doing. Let me give you two truths about your doubts. N number one, notice that Jeremiah, even in his doubt, did not forget the character of God. Even as he's wrestling with doubt, he prays this beautiful prayer recounting how faithful God has been. Number two, he brought his doubt to God. I, I don't want to sound too elementary, but so often, our greatest struggles become even worse because we internalize them for fear that God can't handle them. This is because of biblical illiteracy. I'm not being, uh, uh, I don't want to sound like I'm belittling you, but if a generation does not know its Bible, it doesn't understand that we are not the first people to deal with deep, dark doubt. Read Psalms. Read Job's life. Read how Paul wrestled and struggled with what God is doing. And what you find is this real human experience of both trusting a great and mighty God and dealing with serious doubt about what you do or do not see is a part of the faith that God has called us to. Just bring it to him. Bring it to him. Because after you bring it to him, we find this doubter's remorse, this buyer's doubt, is followed by God giving an honest appraisal. If you've ever bought a piece of property, you need the appraiser to be honest with you. There's always influence on both sides. The owner of the property wants the appraise, appraisal value to be really high. The buyer wants the appraisal value to be really low. This is why the appraiser is supposed to be a third-party independent, objective person that simply evaluates the property on its quality and the comparable properties in and around the surrounding market. This is what a home appraisal is. Now watch God appraise the situation. Look what happens in verse 26. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. So God answered Jeremiah. He said, behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I am giving this city into the hands of the Chaldeans. Now, notice what he says. Two statements. One, is anything too hard for me? He says, it's as if he's saying, Jeremiah, you know, when you started your prayer, you said, oh, God, there's nothing too hard for me, to, for you. And then you ended your prayer, but you asked me to buy a field. And God's answer to Jeremiah is, hey, Jeremiah, you really believe anything's too hard for me? Haven't I showed you in Scripture? Go back to the book of Genesis. What do we find in the book of Genesis? In the scriptures, the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? You know why Sarah laughed? Because God said, Abraham, Sarah, y'all gonna have a baby. Sarah laughed. I always wonder, was she laughing at her old age or was she laughing at Abraham's? Ha! You think you can pull that off? Ha! You think I can do that? Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? And then he says, is anything too hard for God? And Jesus in the book of Luke, in talking about this around Christmas, 
And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. This is the angel talking to Mary. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was, who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. You think it's interesting that the theme around the statement of nothing being impossible with God is a woman who is childless, who becomes with child, that which is barren, having life again. I don't know, maybe like a city destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar will one day have life. Do you see what God's doing? Jesus delivers some strong words about how hard it is for rich people to get to heaven because their confidence is in their wealth and not the Lord. And when he begins talking about this, those who heard it said, then who can be saved? And Jesus said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And finally, in the book of Ephesians, Paul says it this way, he captures it. Now to him who is able, what's God able to do? Far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. So God says, Jeremiah, you ask me because you're doubting. Let me remind you, I can do anything and everything because all things exist merely at my spoken words. God didn't have to work to create. He spoke and it existed. I can do anything I determine to be according to my sovereign plan. Just let that word sink in for just a moment. There's some stuff in your life that looks undoable. There's some people that look unreachable. There's some relationships that look, if you'll allow me, unhealable. I can't speak for what God will do in those situations. That's only for him. But I promise you, he can do anything he chooses to do according to his sovereign will. And that leads, of course, to the final part of the story. Jeremiah, you bought a worthless old field, but you did so because I'm about to show you a property value increase out of this world. In the early 1960s, a company began to secretly buy up a swamp. Bought up a swamp. Here's a picture of it. It was nothing more than cattle operations and flooded fields, creeks, and back channels. The fascinating thing is the company knew that they needed to keep the purchases quiet, and so they hid their identification for many months. All in, they bought about 27,000 acres, spent about $5 million, and purchased it from 51 landowners, and they paid a whopping $182 per acre. I'd like to buy some of that land today, wouldn't you? I could now afford three acres since Laura wouldn't want to ray with me earlier. <laughs> of course, that company is Walt Disney. The land was right outside of Orlando, Florida. They chose it because of its access to the city and interstates. And for about the next five years, they invested millions of dollars in building what you and I know as the Magic Kingdom, home of a rich rat. <laughs> they have a gate there. When you visit, you go through it. When you leave, if you have any money, they take it. <laughs> it's worth now in the billions B, billions, $182 an acre, billions. What happened? A visionary built a series of parks that thousands of people visit 
daily. Thousands daily, billions of dollars. Property values can be increased through what's called appreciation. That's the term for it. It's a general term. It means the property increases for a number of reasons. Can I show you as we close the greatest appreciation of property in all of Scripture? Look what happens in verse 38. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. This section really begins in verse 36. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the city, it is given into the hand of the Babylon by sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Behold, I will gather them from all the countries, things are changing now, to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and in great indignation. I will bring them back to this place, and I will make them dwell in safety, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. I will give them one heart in one way, and they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. Now watch this. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them, and I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me, and I will rejoice in doing them good. Now, I want you to get that picture. God didn't say, I'm going to do them good. I'm going to enjoy doing them good. I will rejoice in doing them good, and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. Thus says the Lord, just as I have bought all this great disaster upon the people, I will bring upon them good. Now watch verse 33. Fields shall be bought in this land. Everything God blesses, he appreciates. And that is real estate restoration. You know the greatest piece of real estate in the kingdom? The human heart. Has he bought yours with the blood of his son? And if he has, do you recognize the value he has placed on your life? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to study this chapter and to see your work in our lives. One of the things that happens when we buy a piece of property is we sign it in front of witnesses, an attorney, a paralegal, a notary, a real estate agent advocating for us, often the agent of those whom we are purchasing the property from. All people who are professionals who, who earn their living helping to make sure that the sale is good and that all parties are treated fairly. It's a good thing to take a man on his handshake, but for us to invest so much of our hard-earned money, we need documents like deeds, seals. We need them to be notarized. We need attorneys to recognize them. The paperwork has to be filed with a county courthouse so that if there's ever a question about ownership, we can prove this land is ours or I sold this land for this amount. All of this gives us assurance. And I think about the picture of the gospel. My heart was worthless. And yet, when it didn't make any sense to the world, a king died and shed his blood and signed the deed to my life and notarized it in red that I might become 
a source of the joy of God, that God would rejoice over every woman in this room he blesses, that he would rejoice over every man, that every child born, the people of the cross, would be a child who has the potential to bless and honor God as one who is owned by him. And so we can have doubts, Lord, and I'm sure we're going to keep having doubts until you return. But when we drill down to the bottom of our doubts, Father, help us to say in our prayer and in our spirit, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. I don't know what else I might own or not own in this world. There's pretty much nothing this old world cannot take from me, cannot rob from me, cannot devalue or depreciate. But blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Church family, I'm going to say amen, and we're going to stand, and we're going to sing. Folks are here at the altar. If you'd like prayer, our prayer room is open as well. We're going to sing this good old hymn. As we do, you deal with the Lord. Heavenly Father, you move now as only you can. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and declare it.